There we are. Thank you. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahoerses, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses to the servant of God have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who have made a name for yourself, as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open the eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would hear our pleas for mercy and that you would hear our confession of guilt and sin and that you would come near to your people 
and that you would heal a fractured and fragile and failing church. You would teach it to be what you've called it to be by your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, some of you are returning uh, back to school, whether that's middle school or high school or college. And uh, some of you are even starting school for the first time, whether that's college or, um, you know, maybe, maybe it's your first year in, in, um, in middle school. And, you know, the thought crossed my mind, wouldn't it be cool if you could just find, you know, maybe in a stack of books at home, a survival guide for how to make it through school. Maybe you're a little bit nervous. You're like, what do I have? what's this going to be like? And you find a survival guide that teaches you everything you need to know when you're going through this tough experience of starting school for the first time. Wouldn't that be neat? Many of us, you know, uh, who are beginning, you know, life as, as a first homeowner or uh, life um, as, you know, with a new job. We say, I would love a survival guide. Go ahead, send that my way. Well, we especially need a survival guide for the Christian life. We need a survival guide to show us how to navigate the complexities of life before Christ comes again. Life in the midst of suffering and evil and our own failures. How do we navigate life as Christians? How do we navigate life in exile, um, as it were, um, strangers to the land in which we live, looking forward to the hope of heaven? Well, as you know, Daniel is such a book. The book of Daniel is a Christian survival guide. It's amazing. It was given to God's people way back, even before the first coming of Jesus. But we've seen over and over again, chapter after chapter, that really Daniel is for us today too. It is the possession of God's people for all ages. And at any time you can open up Daniel and as you lean in and read, you find that Daniel is equipping you to live right now in light of the complexities of this world. And imagine you're turning through that um, survival guide, which is the book of Daniel, and you're seeing the survival guide un- unpacked in terms of prophecy and, and uh, historical stories. But then you come to this prayer. You say, what does this offer me in terms of a survival guide? Why, what's this doing in this guide for Christians? What you need to see is, as it were, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel has underlined prayer three times to show you that prayer and corporate prayer, praying together, is an indispensable feature of surviving as Christians here and now. And you're going to see that that's extremely important because God's people don't just need to pray that God's promises would come in fulfillment, but also that God would bring us through our own failures and unto the hopes that he's given to us. And that's what prayer, corporate prayer does. We're going to see this by looking at the reality that drives Daniel to prayer. And then we're going to see the remedy that he finds in prayer. And finally, the relief that comes flowing over him after he has prayed on behalf of the people. The reality that drives him to prayer, the remedy that he finds in corporate prayer, and then the relief that flows over him and over us when we come to the Lord, confessing our sins in prayer. You ready? Let's, let's, let's look at the survival guide and this section on prayer. And we actually see in front of us um, a prayer 
that Daniel, Daniel lays out. But before that, there's this little introduction, and it says what it is that has driven Daniel to prayer. And what it is, is he's reading through his Bible, right? And he's reading, and he's, and he's in the book of Jeremiah, and something stops him and catches his attention. What is it? The mention of 70 years. Now, you're going to hear a lot about that number 70, especially next week when we turn to the, the latter portion of Daniel chapter 9. All of you were, you know, hoping, okay, get, get to the 77s. What's that all, all about? I'm going to make you wait. Here and now, we are looking at the 70 years that Daniel reads about in, uh, Daniel, in, in Jeremiah 25 and then 29. And, and what, what are those 70 years about? Well, they are a prophecy given 100 years before Daniel was even written. And that prophecy is this, that Israel has sinned against God and it has sinned in such a grievous and persistent way that God is going to have to teach his beloved people the devastation that sin brings. And he teaches them that by sending them into exile amongst the nations, amongst Babylon, for 70 long years. Now, he's already put a timestamp on that, right? He says, at the end of that 70 years, what's he going to do? He's going to bring Babylon to an end. He's going to come and judge them. But in the meantime, God's people are going to suffer and realize that, that they can't continue to live in idolatry and, and, and rejection of God. And then at the end of those 70 years, not only does Babylon come to an end, but God's people will cry out to him and he'll take them back to the land. Now, Daniel is reading this prophecy. Do you, do you have the prophecy in your head? Daniel is reading this prophecy. And now, where is he? He is at the end of those 70 years. How do you know that? Because Babylon has already been judged. Babylon has been um, captured by media Persia and then by the Greeks. Or no, rather, that hasn't happened yet. Babylon has been um, taken over by Persia, as it were. And so that's Daniel sitting at his, um, in the temple courts. And he says, well, wait, Babylon's already been judged. So what comes next? Return from exile. But the people must cry out to the Lord. Israel must cry out to their God. Save us. Help us. We have sinned. We need you, Lord. And that is what Daniel does not find. He looks around. And the whole of his prayer unpacks this, that the reality on the ground is that the 70 years is coming to a quick end, but God's people don't seem ready. Compromise has filled the land. It's like you look around and you say, where, where are the Jews? Where are the Israelites? They're living just like everyone else. Where are the people calling out to God? They're not. They're just, you know, getting used to life as, as it's been over the 70 years. Where are the people confessing their sins? They're living in them. And so Daniel is frustrated by the desolation of Israel. And he looks and he says, the temple of God still stands tattered and torn on a hillside. And the people don't seem to care. That's the reality on the ground. And, and when this reality, I want you to see, is our reality in many ways too. Remember, this book is for us. What is the reality that this matches today? Well, simply this, friends, that the church 
is not yet what God has called her to be. The church is not yet the glorious body of Christ and all of its uh, shining beauty that that God has called her to be. And, And much of that is because of our compromise, of our sins, of our failures. Now, I'm going to trace this, but I don't want to overstate it. I want you to hear, first and foremost, that the church is the bride of Christ. That the church has this beautiful future and even this beautiful present reality and identity that she belongs to God, that God is with her, that God is with us. That when Satan looks at us, he sees this army that that is unstoppable and it shakes him to his core. But at the same time, that church with that identity, with that beautiful future is marked by worldliness. Right here, right now. Do you see it? Does it bother you? That the, that the church has compromised and sold out in many ways. Luther, in his day, spoke of the Babylonian captivity of the church. That's what sparked the Reformation. Was that the church had sold itself out to false doctrine and traded the doctrine of God's grace for works righteousness that just fit in perfectly with social status. And politics, too. And that, that bothered Luther. He said, the church is in captivity to a worldly power. And I, I wonder, when I look at the church today, if that, if that is not happening again. Huge swaths of the Christian church, compromised and sold out, just singing whatever tune culture wants it to sing, desperate for a place at the table of cultural change, and willing to water down its doctrine in order to have that place. Part of the church gets caught up in scandals and in uh, pandering to culture. But, but there's another whole part of the church that is inactive. The church is not only worldly, but it's inactive, passive, prayerless. Where is the church in the world today? Where is it making its work, its, its mark? Where's the prophetic voice of God going forth from the church and calling people to a hope? It's hard to find sometimes, isn't it? You say, why isn't the church doing its job? Why does it feel like it's given up? And we can point fingers all around. Oh, it's that church. It's that denomination. It's them. Why don't we ever look at ourselves? Do we pray? Are we active in the world as God's called us to be? Do we ever pray? Do we ever walk in downtown Dayton and see the darkness and say, Lord, make us a light to the nations now. The church marked by worldliness, inactivity, You know, is it any surprise that Christ's church has become a byword among the nations? Is it any surprise that when the church is marked by these these things? That the world has nothing but trashy things to say about us? Friends, we need revival. The temple in Daniel's day is a picture of a church that was desolate people of God that need revival and repentance cutting through uh, its heart. And, and I, I, would, I, I feel confident that I can say that the church still needs that today. Great strides have been made um, as the Lord has poured his spirit out upon this church. And, and we, have, we are seeing the church do wonderful things, but still we have to say, Lord, we need revival. What's the remedy? The remedy 
is corporate prayer. Daniel shows us how prayer is the first thing that we must do when we see how far the church is presently falling from God's call. Doesn't mean we don't believe that the church is the bride of Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't know that the church has a beautiful future. But it means that when we see that the church is failing in some way or another, the first thing we have to do is get down on our knees together. Now, let me unpack what corporate prayer looks like. Daniel shows us this model prayer. It's like he's teaching us. He's like giving it to us. Here you go, Christians. This is how you're going to pray together. And the first thing is this. When we go to God in corporate prayer, asking for revival, we open our Bibles. We open our Bibles. Have you ever found that when when you turn to pray, you're like, Okay, Lord, I guess I'm going to put my little list together. Um, okay, I'm gonna, I guess I'm going to pray what's kind of bothering me right now. And your prayers just kind of bounce all around. And, and sometimes that actually leads you to be super distracted and just kind of give up and right, even forget you were praying. You ever found that? You see, the Bible is like a Christian's uh, prayer book. It's like Velcro. And when the, when the Christian opens the Bible, we stick to it. And we stick to the promises and the plans of God and his word so that when we come to God and we open the Bible, what we're finding is we start reading about the kingdom of God and the great plans of God and the great promises of God that he will surely fulfill. And as we read about those plans and those promises, we start to pray them and say, Lord, you've you've promised beautiful things for the church. They're not they're not here yet in their fullness. Lord, do this. Lord, make me part of that. Lord, change us so that we can be the church you've called us to be. And so what we're doing, friends, is we're actually start to pray the scriptures. And we actually start to pray in line with the promises of God. Now, that's powerful. You notice that that's actually what Daniel does. What leads him to pray? What structures his prayer? It's the scriptures. The first thing that starts him off in prayers, Jeremiah 25 and 29. He's he's reading in his Bible and he says, oh boy, the 70 years are almost up. And God isn't working, but his people aren't. Lord, stir us up to revival. And then as he continues to pray, there's uh, illusion after illusion, quote after quote embedded in here of the Psalms, of the prophets, of of the history books of the Bible. And it's like the, the Bible has become a prayer book for Daniel. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we prayed like this? I've heard people that pray wonderful, powerful prayers. And I've said, I've asked them, how do you pray like that? And they say, I I just, I read my Bible. I get my nose in God's book. And my words start to become his words. Do you know what I mean? Oh, that we would open our Bibles and start to pray for God to fulfill the promises that he has laid out in his word. And that we would personally be part of that. And then with that anchor of truth, the Bible shaping our prayers, one of the first things we see that just stands out is that God is holy. God is perfect and we are not. God is faithful and we are not. And so that leads us to the heart of corporate prayer, which is confession of our sins. We open our Bibles. We confess our sins. Verse 5, Daniel says, 
We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Daniel is praying for the sins of Israel before and during the exile. Daniel is like this representative of God's people that that steps in and, and starts praying to God for all the things that his people have failed to do. And this is actually what we mean when we talk about corporate confession. You notice we actually have a place in our services. We've, we've done it. It was earlier on the service where we confess together our sins to God. And, and I get up here as a representative of God's people and I lead us in that. Where do we, where do we come up with that idea? Well, Daniel chapter nine, for starters. We didn't just come up with the idea of, oh, it'd be good to confess our sins. No, we get it from Daniel. Where did Daniel get it? He got it from the Bible that God's people should pray for their sins. Now, there's something here that I think makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Let's just kind of admit this. I want to come out and say it. Something about what Daniel is doing here feels weird. And if I could put my finger on it, it's it's this question. Why should Daniel confess the sins of his people? We've read all about Daniel, right? He's been this shining mark of obedience. Um, You know, it's kind of like, you know, we, if we've looked at Daniel in the classroom of the Christian life, Daniel's been the one, you know, studying carefully at his desk while everyone else is like throwing stuff and then, you know, like paper airplanes and, and the teacher's trying to get them in, in, uh, under control. It's like, why is Daniel standing up in the classroom and saying, teacher, we've messed up, we've messed up. Why should Daniel confess the sins and, and own for, his, for this body the sins of people for even 400 years before, b- before the exile. Daniel is owning the sins of his fathers that led them to this very moment. How is that fair? And what I want you to see, friends, is when, when we run up into a tension like this, when we come up into a tension like this in the Bible and we say, how does this fit? I just, what we need to realize is that behind every hard question, is a hidden assumption that we have to unpack. That's a really good rule for understanding your Bibles. Behind every hard question, how does this work? Why is this here? Is a hidden assumption. I think the hidden assumption that that really makes us feel uneasy sometimes about corporate prayer is this, that our society tends to define the place of the individual within society in these radical ways that just don't match the ways of the Bible. Two radical ways of viewing um, the ways that societies are structured. One is collectivism. What is collectivism? Collectivism basically says that all humans, all, all people within the church, I guess you could say, all of every individual within the church is just this un, undifferentiated mass, like an anthill. And you know, there's what you say about one person, you say totally the same about another collectivism. But then on the opposite extreme is individualism. And individualism basically says no man is an anthill. No, every man is an island, an island. And so what, what, what this Christian does and what this Christian does, it's just totally, totally un, un, unseparated, totally separated. You see what I'm saying? These two radical ways of seeing um, uh, the, the ways that, 
that the church as a people of God are structured. And the Bible doesn't speak this way. The Bible doesn't talk about God's people in terms of an anthill or an island. Instead, it gives us the picture of a body, a body. That's the image that God gives us in his word to show us how we are connected as Christians. What does a body help us understand? You know, 1 Corinthians um, chapter 12 uses that image of, of the church as the body of Christ. And we hear that all over. Well, it means that even though we Christians are distinct, unlike collectivism, right? We have, we have, uh, we, we bear um, a, a special burden of responsibility for certain sins, We have certain gifts that others don't have. At the same time, we are connected to a people and we are inseparable from it so that the hand can't say, hey, I don't want to have any part with the foot. And the eye can't say, hey, I don't, I think I want to tap out from this. I think I just want to, you know, be an eye on my own. No, it's part of the body. It's connected. When we stand before God in prayer, friends, we don't stand before him just all alone. Me, myself, Jesus, and that's, that's the end of the day. We stand before God as part of this interconnected community called the church, cross-cultural, multi-generational community. Now that makes a difference when we come together to pray. Because it means that we're we're not just praying for our, our own needs. We're praying for the needs of the whole church. You say, I don't I don't think I need that, that particular thing you're praying for. I'm sorry, but the church does. The body does. You say, well, um, you know, I know that those guys over there are failing in that specific way, but, you know, I'm the hand. I'm not doing what the foot's doing. You're part of the body. You're part of the body. And the body as a whole needs to own the failures, the collective failures of the church. It's really important. We have sinned. This people have sinned. We have fallen short of God. And we're all funneling to that failure with different kinds of sewage tanks, right? But they all go to the main. All, all, all the different sewage tanks run, all the pipes run to the main. It's kind of a disgusting image. But it's true. It's what the church is like when we sin. It's not like, okay, you know, everyone else, just keep on doing what you're doing. No, the whole body jumps in and says, pray. We have sinned. We have fallen short. We, 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 need to, we need to address this. We need to own this. This is humbling because what it does is it reminds us that our sins affect the whole body. If, if you are sitting here and you're, you're trying to believe this lie, that if you, if you were to go from this church service and go and engage in acts that would bring shame to this body, don't fool yourself and think, yeah, that's just between me and God and that's it. No, your actions as a Christian, your actions as one who bears God's name in baptism, come to reflect the whole body and and not only reflect the status of the body, but also affect the rest of the body because you could lead others to sin. And what we need to see is this can happen even hundreds of years before we're even born, that the church can leave us strapped with unconfessed sin that we just, we have to say, you know, I'm not personally responsible for what they did. We're going to own that that was wrong. We need to confess that we need to do better. How about this? 
Corporate confession keeps us from prideful belief that we wouldn't have sinned in that same way. You know, when the hand says, hey, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have ever done what the foot was doing. Really? I wouldn't have ever tripped up like the foot tripped up. Hang on. Here's the thing. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, Jesus condemns the Pharisees because he says, you say that you wouldn't have uh, sinned in the wilderness. You wouldn't have deserted, uh, abandoned God and grumbled in the wilderness. And Jesus says that very claim that you wouldn't have done that, it shows that you have a heart that's exactly where they're at. Friends, when we try to pretend that we never would have failed like those hundreds of years before us or those um, on the other side of the globe would have failed, are failing. God doesn't want us to think that way. God wants us to humbly own that we are sinners like them. And even if we aren't as responsible for the sins that they have committed, we are part of a body that is strapped by sin and is strapped by guilt and needs to deal with this as a whole. Because when the church doesn't own its garbage, when it just kind of ships the garbage off somewhere else, it still stinks. We have to own, own the sins of the body. When we do that, we're not, we're not doing this crazy thing where we just say, hey, I've sinned in, in this. Well, I've personally done this. We're saying we as a body have failed. And when we do this, friends, when, when we open our Bibles, when we confess our sins, what we're doing is we are actually appealing to God's holy reputation. That's what this is about. Look at, throughout this passage, verse 18. Your name, your temple, your people. It's God's reputation that is at stake here. That's what should really crush our hearts, break our hearts and lead us to repent. It's not that, hey, we're really miserable and wishing the church was better. It's we have shamed our God. Together we've done it in different ways, but collectively. We've brought shame upon our God. And the only solution is to turn away from that. And ask God to bring revival upon his church and start to take steps to address all the different sins of the body together as a glorious team. Friends, we've heard the reality that can be disheartening about the church today. It's not where God has called it to be. It's on its way, but it is not there. It is marked by many failures. We've heard the remedy that corporate prayer is that first step. But finally, I want you to see that there is this beautiful relief that rushes over the church when we come to God in prayer. First John 1, 8-7 says, that if we say that we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, friends, that's not just true. When you go to God privately and ask him to forgive those specific sins you've committed, it's also true when we come as a body in church that God forgives his church and he washes us as a people. And that's true because of the cross. What did Jesus do on the cross? On the cross, Jesus took that stinking sewage tank of all of our sins, all the sins of God's uh, precious elect. And what did he do? 
He bore them. And what did he feel in his head? Uh, the, the crown of thorns. He felt each individual prick of each thorn, but he also felt the whole thing, the whole body of our sins pressing down upon his head. He took the punishment for our sins so that he could cry out on the cross, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. And so if you find that you can come, and Jesus does invite you to do this this morning, if you can come as an individual saying, Lord, I've sinned. I've fallen short of, of your glory. I, I am a thorn in, in, the, in the head of Jesus that, that brought that upon him. You can also come hand in hand with brothers and sisters in Christ and say, we have sinned. We are the thorns. Forgive us. Renew us. Cleanse us. Breathe life into us. That's the privilege we have each week to come as God's redeemed, as redeemed sinners and as a family. And friends, there are going to be times that we need to pray for specific failures that are plaguing the church. And there are other times in which we we need to simply confess that we continue to fall short. All of that. That's what's happening. That's the privilege you have in corporate prayer. It's not just some going through the motions. It's not just some um, mumbo jumbo that we, we, we happen to throw in here. It is the dynamic of a living family relationship with God. Isn't that beautiful? When we come to a God who is faithful to forgive, you better bet that that God is going to answer our prayer, our, our repentance with revival. When we call out to God, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips, God doesn't just say, okay. God says, here is my fiery glory presence to cleanse and renew you. Church, step up and be the church that you've called to be and do it by my power. We have the opportunity to to pray that now together. And we're going to do that actually through, uh, through a, a, a hymn. Uh, kind and Merciful God, number 180. It's a corporate confession, and it's a corporate confession and song. I think it's fitting that we might stand for this. So let's go to God in prayer right now, singing together hymn number 180 as we stand.